You are listening to It's Midnight Somewhere with DJs Mistress McCutcheon and The Wasteland. It's midnight somewhere. It's midnight. Hi, this is Mistress McCutcheon coming to you from downtown Toronto, and I'm, of course, accompanied by my partner in crime, The Wasteland. Who is, once again, under Toronto? Western part of Toronto. You're just and, you're a little and further west than I. And, under, and I don't know what the fuck they're doing upstairs, so if there's any noise, I'm going to apologize for that now. <laughs> okay. For today's episode, we are thrilled to have a special guest joining us from the UK, the Bristol-based drag artist and musician, Dis. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Not bad. Not bad. All things considered with this dystopian nightmare that we live in. (laughs) It is truly uh, the end times, but I thank you so much for having me during these end times. I hear the crowding of wings uh, as it it gathers around us. (laughs) I just hope there would be more zombies by this point of the apocalypse. Or Or at least, you know, the the fabulous post-apocalypse wardrobe. I haven't seen any of that yet. I'm highly disappointed. Or the Mad Max Those cars were pretty badass. I I would take any of those right now instead of what we have. Wasn't it always said that the uh, apocalypse, like there didn't seem to be anybody wearing pants? And I think that has happened. It's just not the way we imagined it to be. There we go. It's it's the you know the way we interpret prophecy. It's not quite the way it always comes out to be. They will not be wearing pants. No pants. All I can say is, in my personal experience, is that this is true, and that is mostly because we got rid of our fitting rooms at work, and now people just change their clothes in the aisles. Wow. <laughs> Like literally, oh, look, that's like an 80 year old woman with no pants on. That's something I didn't need to see today. Oh, that's great. <sighs> so that's Takes my personal types. hell. How are I'm you? I like, feel free. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wanted to say I'm really glad that we get this opportunity to chat because uh, you've got some very exciting things going on. Uh, but let's let's start at the beginning. I wanted to get an idea of what your drag origin story is. Oh, well, um, firstly, thank you so much for having me it's it's a real uh it's a real uh honor to be on you know i'm a huge fan of yourself um i've been a big fan of yours for many years now uh with the morbid outlook scene so you you know that um i'm a huge fan of yours and so uh thank you very much for having me um my origin started within the kind of the goth and punk scenes really uh i was very much inspired by the 80s goth scene and the death rock scene, the androgyny of of those sorts of cultures, uh, very much the spooky kind of androgyny of those cultures, as well as the transgressive side of of those those outsider art forms. You know, um, drag started to appeal to me in through the context of seeing performers like you know like Pete Burns and uh, Diamanda Galas and Susie Sue and and you know people like this who who had not only an extreme aesthetic but they had a really powerful message to accompany what they were doing. I found that extremely uh, evocative as a teenager and that kind of led me into creating clubs and and working with different promoters when I eventually moved to Bristol after I'd done my university stuff. Um, so I was working with, uh, I occasionally did DJ spots with groups like uh, Pandora's Box and stuff in Bristol, which is a goth night, uh, and then was uh, a founding member of a queer punk and goth event in Bristol called Psychodrama. Uh, this was all kind of pre- RuPaul's Drag Race. So this was kind of before that had started to kick off. And I'd created a character that was kind of um, kind of inspired by the, the Vaginal Davis kind of queer core style of presentation. So very anarchic, falling apart, you know, not really, um, not like high concept glamour or anything, you know, <laughs> it was very much rough and ready. And there she was. And uh, I kind of felt restricted by a lot of, of what I was doing with that. And the scene was not pleasant, <laughs> shall we say, towards drag performers at the time. Uh, if I remember correctly, the the atmosphere from sort of the more gay alternative as opposed to queer alternative at the time was was quite aggressively anti 
drag presence. Uh, I think partly because they saw that as maybe something that was a hallmark of mainstream drag uh, or mainstream gay communities. And they thought that, I don't know, I think there was a lot of internalized homophobia within that that came up and a lot of misogyny. And uh, that kind of steadily grew. And I eventually kind of killed off the character I was working with and came back with a much more sort of punk rock aggressive form, which was known as Discharge, who eventually, uh, through working with burlesque and cabaret and uh, producing more and more events and touring uh, nationally and internationally, kind of evolved into the character that is now Dis, which feels a lot more comfortable to who I am now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, I think that's probably where I would kind of bring my origins kind of started within that kind of gothic framework and then they've kind of I like to think it that they've kind of always retained throughout my career in its various forms and and styles but then it's always kind of come back to it Um, and that's where I am now and it's the the drag that I do now is kind of gone back to that kind of 80s new wave androgynous post-punk style but I've gotten to create all my own music within that frame as well and create my own art so I'm not working on on other people's pieces or um, or relying on other people's words to convey the message that I have and to convey my own sort of storyline, if that makes sense. Ah, okay. So for our North American listeners who are a little less or likely not at all familiar with what your drag presentation is, you do appear briefly in the ESA video for The Scorn. Is that representative of your look and style? Um, that's certainly representative of one aspect of it. Uh, that was uh, that was taken during the the oh god, what stage of the pandemic was it? Somewhere between zero and hellfire. Uh, that was recorded um, <laughs> somewhere between in that desolate wasteland, as we were talking about earlier. That was taken to fit a very specific aesthetic that uh, Jamie was looking for, uh, based off an old look that I'd done um, for a group called Love Child Boudoir in uh, Leeds. Um, really great group. Uh, and it was kind of during my more high femme presenting period. Now I've moved to, I would like to add, by the way, that that video was banned in Russia. And I just, <laughs> wow. I still love that. <laughs> That's kind of flattering to have a piece of work that's like officially banned in a country. It's oh, like, I must be you. doing something right. Oh, I was so proud. Myself and Jada Love, the other dancer who was in the video along with Kerry, we were just like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> we're outlaws. Um, <laughs> the, the aesthetic that I'm going for now, I, uh, I refer to lovingly as Manny Lennox. So I kind of have this, uh, I wear very kind of fitted uh, suits, often in tartan or like, you know, high print or something you know, kind of luxe materials. Um, And then with a very heavy androgynous paint, but I also have a beard, short cropped hair, dyed electric orange or painted lots of different colors um, and often found in heels or very uh, tight shoes. (laughs) Lennox, I like it. Thank you so much. The new wave is strong in this one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember seeing your look when uh, your first release came out and I was describing it as sexy Aleister Crowley realness. Oh, yes. I I feel so good about that. Thank you. (laughs) I think that's how you explained it to me. You were like, we have to interview this person. They have sexy Aleister Crowley realness. And I'm like, okay, I'm in. Like... I am fully here for that description. I'm using that. (laughs) You mentioned this video being shot at a certain period during the pandemic. Overall, what has your experience been like during the pandemic? Because you mentioned also that you've been doing drag performances, and that's been pretty much what's been keeping you going through this time. What has this all been like? Well... (laughs) Let me tell you. Uh, so about six or six or eight months prior to the pandemic, I had been partly self-employed doing what I'd been doing for about, I think about three or four years. Um, so I hadn't left the day job fully uh, by the time I was sort of a 
yeah, by the time the pandemic had rolled on, I had just gone self-employed. So I was self-employed. I think I'd been about six, yeah, six or eight months prior to the pandemic started. I just left the the part-time self-employed stage of my career and had gone fully self-employed after all this time. Um, and I was like, yes, I'm the one, <laughs> you know, I'd just been on tour in America. Um, it was actually my, I think my seventh, tour sixth or seventh time I think um in like doing like small appearances in different places and you know doing festival appearances and stuff um and I was I was like yes I finally did it finally and I was like okay great I you know I I toured right in through November uh with uh, a close friend of mine the dancer Ophelia Wilde um and then we came back died a death for about two weeks uh, and then went back to, you know, the, the touring circuit in the UK of doing like the burlesque shows and doing the drag shows and stuff like that. Um, and then I was like, right, I'm going to take all of January off. And then everything <laughs> started to cancel in February. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I feel like my life's just about to fall apart. <laughs> oh, man. Um, and uh, let me tell you, without a single exaggeration, I lost three years worth of bookings. <laughs> Holy shit. I was booked up until the end of 2022. I lost every single damn booking. <laughs> Whole wow. career, 10, well, more than 10 years worth of work just disappeared overnight. And I was like, great, cool. Here we are. Um, happened to coincide <laughs> with uh the fact that just as i had uh been just as the pandemic had been had been starting um i will be very candid with you uh i was kind of losing my mind uh so i was having a bit of a, a psychological problem um and uh fragments was kind of the first record was born out of that uh because i i was having some very unusual times and uh that was produced, you know, by burnout and by, you know, lots of other problems and lots of other factors going on. But that played out through the first part of the pandemic. So the first part of the pandemic is kind of a haze, if I'm totally honest. <laughs> uh, but uh, I was very lucky to uh, to have some savings at the initial part of it, which saw me through some of the early strains and the early parts of lockdown. And there was a really great community response, actually, from a lot of different places uh, during the early parts of the pandemic. You know, we had lots of virtual shows online um, that people were really, you know, really responsive to. Um, they donated, you know, and we, we got tipped very well during that period. I also started releasing like little covers and things like that, um, that people were, you know, then made little donations for, which was, I say little, that's, you know, I don't mean to belie anything. It was very helpful. Um, and sometimes people were very, very generous during that period and, and really helped a lot of my fellow performers and, and myself out. Um, I was also kind of able to, to do some of the the government support things that were available that were like pulling teeth and still are. But, you know, as things started to kind of ease, you know, clubs started opening again and things like that. So we were able to kind of start putting our lives back together. But it's all the shutdowns and everything has made things very inconsistent. And I think at the moment, people are kind of torn between this weird, I desperately want to go out and see people and connect with people in my community. But I also don't trust a single word of advice that is coming out because it's usually coming from the government heads who often don't listen to any form of science. Uh, or care at all for the welfare of their people. Um, British government has made this entirely, wholly clear <laughs> on multiple occasions. I won't speak for other governments, but certainly speaking as a resident of the UK, I can say our government has dramatically failed. And that would be the polite way of putting it, uh, the, the most... Uh, disgusting abuse of power that we could have possibly seen at this time that has led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people unnecessarily uh, because they clearly did not give a crap. So that has been my experience of the pandemic. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I hear you loud and clear because uh, I think we're we've reached that phase where you're right. Everyone is tired, and they want to get out and live their lives and try to navigate through these new times. But at the same time, it's kind of like a lot of governments have thrown up their arms and and said, well, you know, let the chips fall where they may because Mm -hmm. the economy. Exactly. So it's been it's been really frustrating and really complicated. Yeah. And and let's take that further as well. I mean, it's not just the economy. It's the fact that nine out of 10 times, I would say that the majority of these politicians in the position of this power or in the position of making these these decisions truly are not being affected by the policies that they they impugn, you know, they don't have to deal with any of the ramifications, because most of the time they are kept away from it. They have put themselves into a position of absolute power where they don't have to be held accountable for their actions, clearly. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's, I think now is the time I think we've always known that there is corruption, we've always known that there is injustice. But now I think there is, there is such a flaunting of that, that it almost feels like we're in this weird tipping point, this kind of gardens of Versailles, any minute now, surely someone is going to get out the axe. <laughs> surely. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, we can only hope uh, the guillotine makes a comeback. Right. <laughs> These disingenuous heads of state um, just cannot be held accountable for any of their actions. It's galling, really. Just galling. Um, Though I will say, uh, without, uh, hopefully, because I I try to balance out my extremely pessimistic worldview uh, by reminding myself that throughout this time, uh, there have also been genuine moments of of, uh, really radical growth discourse and community presence that has ultimately uh, belied a lot of that really disgraceful conduct. You know, I have seen whole communities stand up for one another and support one another and reach out and and put their hands together and prove uh, quite consistently, in fact, as we seem to always have to do, but you know, that's another story, but prove consistently that they will not be beaten uh, by the callousness of these elected officials and these heads of state who are so cowardly in the face of uh, absolute bravery and courageous uh, courageousness. So there is, there are shining beacons of of hope and light within various communities that are, you know, really doing something to change that awful perspective. And maybe they hopefully will uh, win that fight. That's the only thing we can hope for. Yeah. No. I loud and clear. It, I have been so grateful for community at this time, and the fact that folks have pulled together has been really. it's been a beacon for sure. Absolutely. Let's back up a little bit because you mentioned, okay, August of 2020 Mm -hmm. was when your first release Fragments came out and it was described as a messy and tumultuous record. Mm -hmm. And after hearing you talk about that time period, that totally makes sense. (laughs) Yes, does it? (laughs) Just a little. (laughs) I fully agree. How does this compare with your upcoming release? Well, so it is a it's a very different a very different experience. So in between uh, releasing fragments and the new record, which comes out on the eleventh of February, uh, Vulturine, there was a, a massive personal shift, and I think um, you can kind of see that. And I have a couple of EPs out in between that, and a couple of little one-offs in between that. Creep was the first one. The second one was uh, called Vampires in California. And Vampires in California was designed to be uh, released with uh, another event in Bristol called by Wig, uh, Wig in a Box Promotions, this fantastic queer promoter in Bristol. Um, and they did a tribute to David Lynch. Uh, as this kind of performance night with great, these fantastic, like weird industrial bands and performances by like outsider alternative drag performers in Bristol, like Heme. It was it was really fun. It was a great show. And uh, the challenge was to create something uh, for that event uh, to kind of get my creative juices going again. And I was like, right, okay. Because I felt quite like I was in a very certain space when I was creating fragments and I wanted to try something different. So I was kind of listening to a bunch of the 80s post-punk and, and no-wave stuff that really inspired me in groups like Suicide and uh, the Los Angeles resident, uh, Jimmy Smack. Um, mm-hmm. Do you know Jimmy Smack? He's great. Oh, 
his he did this weird EP that was called something like uh, Life Sucks or something, and it's just it's just so weird. He played electric bagpipes. He's like six foot eight um, and dressed like a skeleton, and I was just like, who is this person? He was amazing. <laughs> Um, I think you can still get some of his EPs online. There's been like a re-release of his stuff, but that kind of led me to experiment with a bunch of different sounds and uh, to to try try and force myself to write from a different perspective that wasn't so sort of like obsessed with uh, very specific themes that were, you know, extremely uh, fractious for me. So I started playing around with texture and stuff and I I came up with this track called When I Find My Voice, uh, which is uh, incorporated into the new record Vulturine, so it kind of gives you a bit of a taster. It's a a lot more um, kind of ethereal-based. I've kind of moved more towards, like, noise rock and shoegaze in style. Um, Yes. Yeah, that that lush echo and texture and just notes that stretch out forever and huge waves of distortion is, (laughs) is where I'm really going with this one. So it's a much more full sounding record and a lot less uh paranoid i feel like fragments there was a lot of paranoia and you know skittered fractured stuff it was a lot of like all the 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 broken bones of stuff that was going on so everything felt very raw whereas Mm -hmm. vulturine was me kind of coming out of that and and trying to ascend and trying to rise into something different um and vultures are the perfect symbol of that these beautiful sacred birds with their pants. With their pants. <laughs> With their fancy <laughs> pants. <laughs> they are fancy. I do. I agree. Do you what? Um, do you ever see George the Vulture on uh, Instagram? I love him. He's so cute. Oh, I have. To I have that not, up. but I will have to find. Oh, him. he's so sweet. He's always sitting out there doing his heraldic pose, just looking very cute, just being very fussy. I love him. <laughs> Oh, see, I follow a lot of uh, cat videos and then, of course, raccoons. Oh, I get it. I get it. As a member of the garbage family, I fully understand that. (laughs) Well, Toronto is the the trash panda capital of the world. (gasps) I must come. I must visit. Raccoon City. It is. Don't tell Ryan Stecken. They'll just try and just immediately try and commune with them all. I think they might become their, their sort of strange quing. Uh, <laughs> Look, if you can find somebody with an outdoor patio, you just have to sit on it long enough. They'll come to you, <laughs> Ryan. True. If you're listening to this, <laughs> <laughs> that did actually happen because uh, we were doing a Twitch stream on a Friday night in the summer from my patio, and uh, yeah, a little guy came down the tree, and it was like, all right, he's hanging out with us too. This is cool. Oh, I think he was enamored by the lights. He was just kind of staring, like, what the hell are you? doing it's just tapping on the on the screen like someone from that writhe and shine comic from back in the day it's just like can you play some old school death rock i don't like this new stuff i don't oh like my it God. <laughs> writhe and shine <laughs> Do you remember that? I loved that comic. Oh my god, honestly. I think the um I when I when I used to DJ, it was one of my favorite moments was re- was realizing that the Rise and Shine comic had come to life when uh uh seeing a whole bunch of different subcultures within the goth scene going up to my friend and asking him for the different things because this one wasn't goth or this one wasn't goth enough or this one was too goth. Can we try this? Can you <laughs> play something like, I can oh. dance to is my favorite. It's like, what does that even mean? That's usually when he would put on the washing machine record that was just bits of washing machines just turning around. Look, that was Neubauten's best album. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Think of that what you will. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Collapse. So, so we talked a bit about, you know, your process and all, but what, what actually inspired you to get into music? Was it just entirely having no other outlet or was it something you always wanted to do and you finally found yourself at the time? Yeah, that's, it's, it's very much that I'd, I'd always wanted to create music. I'd always wanted to write music. I've always sung, um, and singing live has been part of my drag performance from, from pretty much the first thing. Well, it was the very first performance. I did. I was singing uh, uh, the English translation of the Hungarian performance by Serge Rajo, uh, The Gloomy Sunday, that is close to the original text as, as, as possible at the time. 
Um, it doesn't sound difficult at all. I know. I was like, <laughs> oh, you know what? It's fine. I'll do that. It'll be a fun night for everyone. Um, <laughs> a great time was had by all. Um, <laughs> um, so I'd always sung with, with doing what I was doing, but I'd had to rely on backing tracks from other performers because uh, I lacked the uh, confidence to ever really pick up an instrument I'd always was just like well I can sing I'll just get through that way so you know that was that was kind of the thing um and I'd worked with a number of different people uh along the way including the wonderful Charlie Beddoes of the fantastic industrial band Nasty Little Lonely who are totally slept on Charlie's been in in she's worked with everybody and she's just brilliant but I I got really kind of fed up of having to channel it through other people's things and i while my skills as a musician, I would say, are developing, <laughs> mm-hmm. it was a very liberating thing to just get stuck in and go, come on, you you know, you listen to all of this music for all of this time. You've always been uh, completely besotted with doing things yourself on a DIY kind of approach. You think that the music that was created from those from that approach was was always some of the most evocative that you've ever heard why aren't you doing it yourself? So I was like, you know what, it's time to stop being afraid of all of this stuff. And just, you know, if you get it wrong, you get it wrong, but try it. So uh, during the first part of the pandemic, I was obsessed with a particular idea I was working on. I still actually have it. It's still on the back burner. It will happen one day, uh, a, a performance of, of, of an Artaud piece I've always wanted to do. But I was like, I need to try and get something done. So I started playing around with, um, with a synthesizer that I had uh, called Chaosolator and uh, just GarageBand and uh, the BandLab app. And I was like, okay, let's see what I can create. And I made a stunning array of howls and shrieks and clicks, um, <laughs> drums and uh, aggressive uh, noises that eventually became fragments. Um, and then that kind of developed uh, a lot more into the, the kind of the shoegazy stuff and has taken on a much more melody based <laughs> approach than the first record which was which was more steeped in the idea of like trying to experiment and create something out of chaos and and confusion uh this one was trying to about this one was more about trying to craft something out of those things that feels a bit more melodic and takes you to a different place i wanted to kind of feel like i you know share that growth um and take you to a different headspace than was in fragments which was a lot more desolate and paranoid as i say so everything's kind of changed and come full circle with this new record it's a lot more um i feel like it's a lot more personal definitely uh and it's uh it's definitely a lot more um it's definitely more in keeping with what i kind of always wanted to do i think um in that it's it's now taking me on that journey of like being able to create different sounds and styles and and to, to kind of experiment with different forms within a certain canon of, of styles. So I'm really enjoying the process. Amazing. Yeah, because I've featured some of your tracks on uh, Esoterica, which is the stream that we've done. You which have, is in the middle. And I keep queening out every time you do. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's just it's really lovely to do a stream which is what's in the middle of our afternoon but is Mm. evening for the folks in the UK and in Europe because otherwise since we're always streaming on Friday nights or it's our Friday nights we're on at three or four in the the morning for everybody across the pond so it makes it really difficult to uh, to catch up on stuff but the comments have been really positive uh, because I know a friend of mine who lives in Bristol was like wait they're in Bristol I'm like yes (laughs) this reminds me of old coil like old school coil and I'm like right I'm so flattered I'm so flattered. Definitely, Coil were were very much Coil and Diamanda and people at and Throbbing Gristle and groups like that were very much a, were very much part of the inspiration, um, as well as a lot of like I think this gets this gets left out of a lot of discussion of industrial music, and I I feel like it needs to be discussed a lot more. Free jazz had a profound effect on industrial, and I don't think it gets talked about nearly enough. I think a lot of like you know. Um, just into much like Ornette Coleman or Archie Shap. Mm-hmm. Oh, those those early structures on like Shaper Jazz to Come um, and Archie Shep's like Juju record are just they so obviously must have been influencing uh, into uh, you know a lot of those early industrial musicians. And I think that was definitely a, a like it. 
those weird atonal experiments and stuff and plays with rhythm, I just find fascinating. I could listen to it all day, all day and every day. But um, to go back to your uh, to the to the amazing podcast you do, because I, I really enjoy listening to you, DJ. I often will have it literally playing on in the background as I'm doing things on like, you know, on the weekends and stuff. So it's it is always I fully get what you're saying. It's it's really nice to be able to have that kind of like, oh, I can just sit down and, you know, have some music going on while I'm doing stuff in the background is or I can really like engage with it it's really nice I've picked up a bunch of um, uh, of uh, recommendations uh, from your from your sets I must say as is oh thank you not at all surprising considering uh, how much of my record collection you informed <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as a teenager honestly yeah Indara is is one of my new favorites um, after amazing. you played them amazing Indara local yes local Toronto stuff oh really they're great yep. yeah yeah they were really great yeah we know Sue she still lives here in Toronto and yeah the the work that she's doing um because with with that Andara album, it, it was very much a concept album that ties a lot into the social work that she does, and 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 working with folks who've been wrongfully imprisoned and and all sorts of stuff like that. Like she's just she's a force. She's a really lovely, amazing person. Oh, she sounds it. I mean, the record was the record is beautiful. Um, yeah. absolutely gorgeous. I remember being struck by it when you first played it. And I was like, who, because it was, it, yeah, it was walk on fire. You played. Yeah. Um, and I was like, um, excuse me, who is this now? Uh, so she, she has been on quite heavy rotation on my, on my thing. Um, as I say, I don't think it comes as much of a surprise. I think I've told you this a few times since we've spoken online, but the morbid outlook in rotation, uh, selections, I think cinema strange and Bella Morte and all those groups I was introduced to through your blog. You were my, uh, you were the John Peel of my goth years of my baby goth scene years. Oh, I am so honored to hear that. That's amazing because anybody who mentions Morbid Outlook, that's how I know that they're like old school. Oh, you know it. <laughs> that's seriously old school. Well, because Dis, do you realize that this year marks 30 years of Morbid Outlook? No way. It turns 30 this year. I was a precocious child. <laughs> you were a precocious <laughs> child. Oh, my God. Oh my god! I still have so many of those records. <laughs> I got. I gotta say, I'm. A, I'm a little embarrassed. Dis knows what you play better than I do, and I work with you. <laughs> Sorry, Jay. I'm Stop. showing you up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's cool. It's cool, and I'm I'm a. Uh, I'm ashamed. <laughs> You're going to go into the shame corner now. No, don't go into the shame corner. Well, I am recording in a corner, so I'm probably already there. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. I, I like to think of my the room that I live in as a crypt. I live opposite a cemetery, which just is just too perfect. So oh my god! <laughs> I'm Absolutely. living in a moldy crypt. <laughs> I mean, I live in a I live in a cave. I live in a tomb. Really, I call it a tomb because there's no <laughs> windows, and I am under a shop. So, oh, I love that. Uh, yeah, it's great. There's when I turn off the lights, there's no light, and I kind of love it. But it's also kind of a tomb. I wake up, I'm like, it's. It's uh, sometime, I guess. Where's my phone? <laughs> I can't remember who it was, but there was a there was a drag performer. I think it may have been Squeaky Blonde, who um, I remember them making a post a few years ago about moving out of one of their their old haunts in, in somewhere in LA, and they called it the Methadream Dollhouse. And I was like, that is the best name I've ever wow. heard. The Methadream Dollhouse. I was like, oh my God, to live in that. <laughs> Yeah, that is a good name. When I lived in the Lower East Side, our apartment was nicknamed the Maxi Pad. And <laughs> I love that. My, my current house is Bohemian House. Okay. Because we work on all our creative projects here and we live here. So that's wonderful. And it's kind of a dumpy, dumpy house, but it. Uh, but we love this neighborhood and and uh, yeah, I'm just. It, it, it's funny talking about like not seeing daylight because I've been so excited about it getting lighter longer. Oh, I'm right. noticing the days are starting to get a little longer, which gives me hope because uh, I've been so cooped up through the pandemic that I'm I'm aching to get out and just go do things again. Oh, bless you. It has been, I was going to say, how have you both fared during this, uh, during the, the pandemic? It's been a lot. We've totally been on opposite sides of the coin because I work from home. And I don't really leave the house. I mean, that sounds great. 
<laughs> and I work retail and I'm on transit every day and dealing with people and Oof. am a lot less extroverted than Laura. I wouldn't say I'm a introvert. I'm, I'm, I'm an ambi. I'm an ambivert. I go back sure. and forth. I get you. And, I and get usually you. after work, I, I'm more of an introvert because just fuck off, leave me alone. Well, once you've been speaking to people all day, you're just like, oh God, this is torture for you right now, isn't it? I am torture for you right now. <laughs> no, no. Actually, no. today was pretty good. I'm we had like you, we had like the entire management team for the store in, and I just kind of went out and did tasks and didn't talk to anybody for like four hours of my workday. I love pretty that. You're awesome. like, management's here. I don't care for these people. I'm just leaving. <laughs> I have my own stuff to do. Yeah, I like that. I, I was like, I got to save social battery for afterwards, but I'm going to have a more rewarding conversation than any conversation I'm going to have here at work. And isn't and that that's true. cool? Ain't that yeah. the tea? They're not paying you for your. They're not paying you enough to to have your. Uh, to, to Look, have they your barely soul. pay me enough to show up at this point. So that's that's a different rant, and that's a whole other episode. If anybody actually wanted to hear that, <laughs> next time on. <laughs> It's just the three of us being bitter. <laughs> I, I get very, I could get very bitter. There's a reason why uh, Laura started replying to certain comments of mine with the amount of salt shakers on one to five. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You make you make a couple statements. And I'm like, wow, that's a three salt. That's oh, a three salt statement. I, I appreciate that so much. I've gotten like one or two fives over over the last little bit. Well, it's been a testing few months. We had Christmas. I mean, God. (laughs) The worst. The worst. See, Christmas for me is actually slow because of the, the, I work in thrift and nobody wants to buy old shit for for Christmas because propaganda. Uh, But Halloween, Halloween, which I used to enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) It's been ruined. (laughs) As a drag performer, I feel you. (laughs) But then I can never fully, I can never clearly fully leave the, uh, the, the, the total love of uh, Halloween behind, no matter what. I don't think it's possible at this stage. Um, it's a bit like, you know, what was that? Who was it? Clint Catalyst, I think, who said, you know, they call themselves a goth in recovery, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like, I always say I'm a goth in relapse because it just never really stops. I'm like, well, I think I've changed. I think I'm not doing it in the same way that I was before whilst fully wearing as much eyeliner and as much makeup as I always wore, still listening to the same music. Oh, my word. I'm like, I feel like I've changed. Well, it's it's like they say, oh, you'll mellow out when you get older. I'm like, I've gotten older and nothing has mellowed. I'm I've like, gone the other way. I've, I, if anything, I've gone, I, I've gotten to the point where my my, uh, my mom blocked me on Facebook saying I'm too angry and too, uh, I have too many crazy ideas about how the world should work. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, So I that's swear. fun. I mean... <laughs> I think I think the power to shock is still kind of uh, still kind of interesting in these very jaded times. <laughs> you know, we've got to have something, I guess. Um, uh, yeah, I think. Although I think, I guess, I think the politics of shock aren't really the. I don't think we really have the the same uh, appreciation for for that anymore. I think we've had to move beyond the politics of shock now in terms of in terms of music. I think that kind of. Uh, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day, like the 90s era of, of heyday transgressive art when it was trying to, well, that wasn't the heyday, but it was like the, there was that pinnacle of really aggressive transgressive art that had made mainstream kind of uh, fame and had become so well known, I think on the same sort of level as like, you know, maybe Alice Cooper had become in the 60s and 70s. But I don't think that kind of, that message works in the same way as it used to. I don't think it's, it doesn't, I don't think it has the same impact that it used to. I think we've had to move on uh, as artists and as, as creators to create something that shocks in a different way if we are using that and to look for different ways to make our statements uh, have impact. Um, I don't know. I think that's, I think that's something that kind of, because a lot of the music that that inspired me certainly as a as a teenager and and has continued to inspire me into adulthood, you know, a lot of the the performers like um like the legendary Lydia Lunch, for instance, who uh, you know has created works that have you know been truly astounding and shocking in her time, or Diamanda Galas for the same reason, or Linda Sharrock, you know, um, these audacious recordings, um, and these audacious practitioners of art, I think. Uh, we've all had to kind of change our tact in lots of ways. I think everybody's had to to take a, a 
I think everybody's looking at a more nuanced way of, of speaking now, which I think is, is kind of interesting just as like a, a weird kind of progression of things. Um, I think people are, are talking less in absolute statements than they were and talking more about like how, how things feel a bit more nuanced and how we, how we need to have different strategies for kind of taking things on and, and how we reflect on our lives. And I see that a lot in music now. Um, I think people talk less in, in absolute and more now in, in the vagary of things. Uh, but maybe also it's like midnight here and I'm losing my mind. So there's also that. <laughs> I've been left alone in a dark room for too long. (laughs) You're just talking in a dark room to people on the other side of the planet. (laughs) Who are like, who, where did you find this weird drag queen? (laughs) We love weird drag queens though. Thank you. Actually, we really do. (laughs) We do. I like that. I'm excited. <laughs> I mean, goth grew up alongside drag. So, and, and in many instances, like goth, most goth girls are, are basically drag queens. I mean, when you see oh, right. how done up some folks can get, it's, it's really, oh, it's you, really something. You try looking at Patricia Morrison, Susie Sue, Diamanda Galas, and not say that those people aren't drag queens. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, iconic. Like, how do you not enjoy these looks? Right? It Drag is an extreme art form, and it's a transgressive art form, right? And I think women have been the practitioners of that high glam drag for so many years. They just don't get called it half the time, which is bullshit misogyny in in and of itself. Um, But yeah, there's no two ways about it. Like, Susie, you know, all of these people, the the goth aesthetic, like that femme goth aesthetic... That is high drag. High drag. Yeah. And it's just, and it's funny because this brings us into folks explaining like goth is a music subculture and it is, but Mm. the fashion part of it is an aspect of it. Yes. And I mean, as much as the music is very important and it's mm-hmm. it's what kind of spawned everything mm-hmm. but uh but those like it's undeniable how enjoyable it is to have all these different looks like, from mm-hmm. Diamanda Galas, Susie Sue, Patricia Morrison uh like and then if you look at any like death rock band, right. what the various looks were at the bat cave, like mm-hmm. you, looking back on all that stuff, it's just that nowadays, again, with social media, like you, you see everybody's about a look and it's, it's so much more polished than it was, mm. you know, 20, 30 years ago. Sure. Sure. But the, the innovation of those ideas was, was the interesting thing. Cause a lot of those looks existed for, you know, blink and they were gone. Um, yeah. it was, it was always the thing, you know, um, he's a hateful creature, but boy, George, you know, documented those early days of the, the new romantic scenes before it became, uh, before it was known as new romantic and it was what the, the cult with no name. Um, and you saw the crossover of those early years of like new romantic post-punk goth, and a lot of those images, those uh, those like high kind of like androgynous images that we saw being you know uh, used by people like you know Andy Sex Gang, for instance, or the Specimen Crowd, or anyone who went to the Batcave, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, they were playing with concepts in the same way that they're that the, the punks had been playing with concepts because obviously they were directly related to that. And the punks had been playing with concepts that were taken from anarchic representation by queer people. Drag has directly influenced all of those cultures as much as they don't want to admit it half the time, <laughs> especially when you get down to the more punk side of it, because they really don't want to admit that. But like sure. queer people, black people, women, indigenous people, we were the you know the, we were the ones who were influencing those cultures on a spectacular scale. But then you know the 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 harshing of those cultures meant that the uh, the figureheads of those became very specific you know white codified straight codified images. Um, but those those subcultures were heavily influenced by drag and by transgressive queer uh, outsider art forms. 
yeah. you know, I mean, let's face it, all punk has come from blues and jazz. <laughs> and that's, you know, for all <laughs> contemporary music, pretty much. Uh, and then, you know, in terms of wardrobe and style, that's been taken from a number of different, uh, you know, outsider, queer and, and you know, uh, various uh, uh, cultural roots. Um, and I think certainly goth and the, the culture of goth has developed, you know, it's its own specific, unique style of that. And that's one of the really interesting aspects of the culture. You know, it, it helps diversify it and helps to to show the kind of the, the extreme heights of it. And I think um, seeing some of those enduring cultural moments then repeated uh, on the modern era with like this kind of extreme level of polish is actually quite interesting. It's like a whole new re-examining of, of those tropes. Um, sometimes completely divorced from the original intention and meaning um, and totally created into something new, which is quite interesting. And it's quite exciting, actually. It's quite, inter- it's, you know, it, it's a, a very unusual thing to see some of the stuff that like, that I saw as like hallowed imagery when I was a teenager finding out about these groups for the first time, now seeing like weird nods to them in places that you weren't expecting to. Um, and sometimes from people you didn't expect them to like, oh, I didn't know you were influenced by that. And they're like, ah, yes, I was. You know, it's it's interesting to see how far the culture is, has kind of gone and developed over time. Yeah, yeah. Because that and, and I mean, I feel like while aesthetic of goth has uh it's also gotten very kind of codified at the time uh in in these times because there's now very specific things that people look for like everybody wants that pair of winkle pickers and everybody wants a kill star dress and everybody wants a this or that and it's it got it got very labely yeah which is weird um but it's it's uh, really not when you pay attention to the the presence of it in pop culture going back to the 90s and how there are bands that pop up and will use the aesthetic that have nothing to do with the subculture and then you get hot topics selling goth clothes in the mall so mm. it, yeah it's it's gonna go that way eventually and that's where we're at today i think what, what started this whole tangent which <laughs> is you know there are people who are into the aesthetic, but know nothing of the music and have no interest in it. And it's a little disconcerting. It's a little sad. Yeah. Yeah. I think it depends sometimes because I'm like, okay, I suppose, because there's lots of different avenues to understanding it and to finding it. And sometimes we really don't own the images that we're claiming anyway. Sure. <laughs> like sure. Claiming. Um, so there's there's some of that I think sometimes as well that I've seen plenty of people within the goth culture wearing things that I'm just going to say they have no damn fucking business uh, wearing uh, and certainly do not understand sometimes this comes from iconography that they really shouldn't be wearing Um, but then that's also a problem with the the goth scene in general that we you know got co-opted a long time ago uh, by very disturbing elements Um, Mm -hmm that have pervaded the scene. Um, and I think uh, sometimes people still adopt those fashions and and imageries uh, without fully understanding their, their cultural context. So we're guilty, we're just as guilty, you know, the goth scene is just as guilty of it as, as anybody else is. It can be irksome though, when you see someone wearing a, a, like a Susie t-shirt and you think, oh my God, somebody, you know, who likes the same music as me. And hey, do you love that Susie? And they're like, who the hell is that? Is this a... <laughs> You're like, nah. right. is um, this a person? Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It 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 it's such a weird thing because I mean, fat. Well, fashion's really it's fun, it's creative, and it's it's an indicator. Yeah, because when you can spot someone dressed in black who's wearing that like Bauhaus t-shirt or that Susie t-shirt, and you go, oh they're into this music. Like it, it's how you can identify like-minded people, but. Uh, you know, recently in uh, I've seen in in mainstream media, everybody's calling it gothcore, and I'm <laughs> yeah. like, why? Why? Because it was cottage. First, you had cottagecore, and now you've got gothcore. You needed to add the word core to it. Like every couple of years, goth becomes very fashionable because some celebrity wore something black and kind of edgy. <laughs> yeah, fully. Well, I mean, like, it's every, I think it's every fall, it's pretty much every fall, one collection 
at least of a high fashion brand will do a revamp version of a goth kind of uh, goth adjacent imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll put it in like some sort of bleak, desolate term because winter and fall, blah. Um, you know, it's a, it's an easy <laughs> trope, you know. And then suddenly, it's a new trend. Uh, I hate that you're one? disparaging fall. I enjoy fall, but fall I winter. love the fall. But you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> fuck winter. It's just that whole thing of like every year. There's someone who puts out a collection. Of like, can you believe it? They redefined the black silhouette, and you're like, oh, did they? <laughs> I didn't see it coming at this time of year. <laughs> You know, I'm always yeah, just like, every, oh. <laughs> every time fall comes around, it's like, okay, get you know, it's time to bust out all the velvet because right. that's when it's the appropriate time to wear it. Because I don't know, although bless bless the little goths who want to go out and wear velvet and, and capes and things like that in the, in the summertime. Oh, I've done that. I have to. <laughs> I have not done that. I dated somebody who did that velvet dress in August. Oh, halfway through the night was like, this was a mistake. Oh. This is a bad idea. Leather trousers and like a velvet trench coat. Just thinking, looking back on it, I'm just like, why? Why? But then also looking back on it, I now sit there and go, yeah, a metric, you know, ton of makeup, a wig, dresses, corsets. I think I was just training. <laughs> I'm pretty sure everybody starts somewhere. It was just a lifetime of drag waiting to happen. Look at Ross Williams. That's what he did. He was like, you know, straight into that drag for most of his career. He was like, I'm ready. (laughs) I can do this. So, this has been such a great conversation. But just tell us what we can expect next. So, the the next thing you can expect from me is my new record, Vulturine, uh, which releases on the 11th of February, dismusic.bandcamp.com. Uh, I'm pushing forward into a, into a very different style of uh, songwriting for me. It's a lot more personal. It's a lot more, I'm going to say it, it's a lot more optimistic. Ooh, look at her go. Um, <laughs> look at her go. It's a it's a very different space for me to be in, and it's a, it's a much more exciting one actually. I feel like it's a lot more dynamic, and I'm I'm really looking forward to this. This is this is a record I spent a, a nice, decent amount of time laboring over and uh, yelling at and mixing and freaking out over and going, oh god. Um, and then eventually coming out and going, actually, I'm really proud of this. And uh, it's a, a whole different step for me. And it's something brand new. And I'm I'm just excited to share it with people. So, uh, you know, come and listen to it. There's, uh, there's a single out at the moment called When the Lights Are Low, uh, which recounts, uh, it recounts many stories from being on the road, uh, but one particular set of tour dates going uh, from, you know, Austin to Dallas to Boise to Chicago and seeing amazing drag performers and ballast dancers and sex workers and strippers and just wonderful people of, of weird queerness out in the wild doing what we do, being strange and living the life that we live. Um, and the video accompanying it uh, depicts that, actually. So you get to see a little bit behind the scenes of what it's like to be on tour um, as a, a weird outsider drag artist uh, working in burlesque and drag uh, in the in the 20-teens. <laughs> um, so yes, and there'll be a, a brand new video as well coming out that's being shot very soon uh, for The Gift, which you can actually get as a free download when you buy the record on pre-sale now. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me, by the way. This has been amazing. I really enjoyed this. A pleasure. A pleasure. Yeah, I. it's been great to connect. And uh, actually, let's, uh, let's end this episode out on When the Lights Are Low. Folks, this is It's Midnight Somewhere. Don't forget to tune in and catch Prophecy Streams on Friday nights at 10 p.m. Toronto time. It's at twitch.tv slash prophecy underscore online. We also have buttons and stickers. If you go to morbidoutlook.com slash button or morbidoutlook.com slash sticker, that's our swag. You can purchase any of those things there. <laughs> buy and, our shit. Uh, Get it. Buy, buy our it. shit. <laughs> And uh, again, yeah, it's been it's been awesome chatting with you. And let's end on when the lights are low. Thank you so much for having me.
This podcast was almost called Fuck Eldridge. Because, really. <laughs>